Welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you're here. I'm your host, Anna Dimmel. I'm a blogger, author of two books. I ran a nonprofit and was also a pastor. You could say I've lived some life. I'm here now inviting you to go behind the mirror as we drop the masks and dig deep into real conversation. Welcome. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Oh my goodness, we have so much to talk about today. Today I'm interviewing one of my dear friends, Jonathan Bowles. For those of you who may not recognize that name, Jonathan Bowles was deeply involved in all things megachurch for pretty much all of his life. He eventually became a pastor at a very large church and developed actually one of the largest internship, youth internship programs in the U.S. Outside of that, he had his hand in developing and creating and launching a lot of other very successful youth internship programs at churches all around the country. But as you'll learn in our conversation a few years ago, all of that came to a sudden end. And today we get to hear that journey. We get to hear about how he started a ministry almost just as a kid and how he got to see what goes on behind closed doors in all things church and how that affected him, how that impacted him. And then we get to hear how he grew from that, how he learned from that, and how he eventually decided that that space was not the right fit for him. And so I I am so excited to share his story with you. Um, in our conversation, there are a few things that he may say about his beliefs that, that you may not agree with, but that's okay. That's okay. One of my favorite things about this space here is the freedom to bring different ideas, different journeys, different perspectives, where we can all learn and listen and grow and hear from each other. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the infamous Jonathan Bowles. Jonathan. What's up, Anna? How are you? Oh, I'm so good. It's so good to hear your voice. Oh, my gosh. How is beautiful California today? I'm not going to lie. It's a little early, and I got in a little bit late, but it's sunny Uh and beautiful and relaxing and perfect, and you should probably be here instead of there. Yeah, don't rub it in, my friend. Don't rub (laughs) it in. We are – although – here in Kansas, we are actually having like 50 degree weather this weekend. Oh my gosh, heat I don't wave. Know. Heat wave, heat advisory. I know, right? Everyone, people are out in like shorts and like tank tops. They're just totally thrilled with this warm weather. It's very funny. But next week, we're supposed to be in the negative digits again. So, oh, no. Yes, yeah. You just need to get away from all that negativity. <laughs> All the negativity out in the Midwest. Right. That's what we had to do. We had to leave where we were, leave our land and our father's home and go to a place that God would show us. Amen. (laughs) You went to to the beautiful promised land, my friend, flowing with milk and honey and lots of palm trees. (laughs) Exactly. A land of milk and honey. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. We have so much to talk about. I'm so excited. But, like, I was thinking when I was preparing for this, I was thinking, like, oh, my gosh. We have known each other for a long time. Oh yeah, no, it's been a it's been a long, long time. Um, I think that our paths probably first crossed like 
maybe even before the turn of the yeah the turn of the millennium <laughs> like back in the 90s maybe i know <laughs> yeah. i know i know well you know we we share the roots of a small midwestern church in blue springs called cornerstone yeah. and we were not in youth group at the same time i was a hair older than you just a hair but but yeah i re- i remember those days and i remember yeah. you and all of your charismatic self and um it's just it's very very funny that i've known you this long yeah yeah no because i actually my family moved from louisiana back to missouri where they're originally from um in 1996 and we started going to a church there called christ triumphant uh in lee summit which uh a lot of people might not know it but that is the movie where they filmed that documentary jesus camp um, if you haven't, right. if you haven't seen Jesus Camp, folks, you, you gotta go see it. It's, it's a, it's a really, really good documentary. But that was the church. Like I know, I got a ton of those kids in that documentary, but that's where I, um, started going to youth group after we moved back to Missouri from Louisiana. And so mm-hmm. I, then, uh, they had a church split, like all good churches do. Um, and, yeah. At that split, the youth pastor, he uh, he quit and started to go work for YWAM, and so I liked him so much um, that I was like, well, peace out, I'm out. And so I went to go do the YWAM thing as well, um, and I – they were doing like a local youth outreach deal, and then somehow through uh, a couple of friends here and there in the city and then one, you know, very uh, influential dude in my life, I ended up coming on staff at Cornerstone as like an intern. So I think I was right. probably, I want to say, no, actually I was in college already by the time that we started, that I started going to Cornerstone. Um, so I didn't that really have sense. like a full on youth group experience there. Um, right. I, I had already graduated uh, high school and was in college and I kind of started going there because of the invitation, the invitation, uh, to be an intern there. And then that's where, but right. I think also because of the homeschool vibe and, uh, your dad and music and things like that, I think that our paths kind of crossed outside of there, but I was aware of, of Anna Jamar yeah. outside, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> and then right. we finally crossed paths there, so. Yeah, yeah, because I was just transitioning out of being a youth leader at Cornerstone Yeah, as you came in. So that's where youth group connection kind of clicked in my head. But, yeah, I remember that. And it's, gosh, it's been ages ago. But but let's start with that. Let's start with that. Tell us how you grew up. Like, what was the dynamic in your home life, all of those good things growing up? Oh, man, I like, I always tell people, like, my earliest memories are under the pews, you know, Um I grew up, my, my family's originally from, from Missouri, but in, when I was like three or four, we moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and there's a big church there um, that I grew up at, and I mean, I, the, the church back then, I don't know what they have now, but, but there was these uh, padded baby blue pews, and this auditorium sat, you know, 8,000 people. It was massive. So, I mean, all I've really ever known is Deep South charismaniac megachurch right and Mm. so that's where i grew up and uh one thing i distinctly remember though is just really enjoying the preaching like i really i never went to children's church 
I always sat in the Sunday services. And, and I'm not saying that I was like this perfect attentive kid on the front row just soaking in the oratory right. from the minister of the day. But, like, it was it was just something that I enjoyed. And, you know, a lot of kids maybe, you know, when they were growing up, they would go to bed with, you know, maybe the TV on in their room or maybe, you know, a, a song or lullabies or whatever. But I had just giant boxes filled. My mom would get every cassette tape of every sermon every week. And I listened to those over and over, and when guest speakers would come in, like, that's mm. that's what I was into. I loved it. I loved listening to those guys. I loved the stories. I loved the speaking. I loved the whole deal. And, and so my parents were super, super involved. We were, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Saturday morning prayer meeting. And then <laughs> they also really got involved at an unwed mother's home. And so we were always you know, up there, you know, doing projects at that house or, you know, taking the, you know, the lady that was in charge of that, you know, loading up the van and taking her to Sam's and buying all the food for the thing. And so, I mean, our life revolved around what was happening up there uh, at that church every week, you know? And so, yeah. and, and that was, you know, from 1985 to 1996, then we moved to, um, then we moved back to Missouri. So that that was kind of the upbringing. It's just that's really all there was, <laughs> you know, was was church right. and school and sports, and and that was it, you know. Yeah, and that becomes not only your culture but your social life and your home life, and for you, future career life because I, it was probably natural, given that that was your norm every day, every night, and what you were naturally attracted to that. Ministry was your fit, right? Well, yeah. What's interesting is that, like, I remember vaguely my dad, you know, kind of alluding to the, so you you want to be a minister? I think you'd be really good at that. And I remember growing up, I, I wanted to play baseball or be a bodyguard, one of those two. And <laughs> I, I think you it, did. Of course Right? <laughs> now, look, I mean, I'm, you know, all about five foot eight on a good day. And so a bodyguard <laughs> was not necessarily maybe head of security. Maybe I could do that, but I'd have to bring in some muscle. But, uh, you know, I don't know necessarily where those things came from. I, I really enjoyed sports and everything like that. But it wasn't really until we moved back to um, – back to Missouri that I even really considered um, going into the ministry, which is hmm. so weird, weird to say that phrase, go into ministry. And I, I haven't know. said that in I know. quite some time. <laughs> um, but I do remember, like, this is, I kind of, I, I, I used to say that I like had this moment of feeling like I was called. And there was a girl in our youth group that snuck out of her house with her sister and her boyfriend and, they ended up wrecking a car, and the girl died, and everybody was just mm -hmm. totally distraught. And the youth pastor was out uh, of the country at the time leading a missions team to, you know, somewhere. And I remember that I was kind of the only, like, leader person left with all the, like, bad kids in the youth group that were all yeah. upset that, like, one of the bad kids had died. And um, oh. so I, I just remember on a Wednesday night going into the the church, and this was like, you know, she had died earlier that morning, and 
the all the kids, like there was no leader there. We weren't really gonna have youth groups that night because the pastor was gone. But all these kids were just like sitting in a room crying. I remember walking into it and feeling like, man, somebody should do something. These people are hurting, <laughs> you know. And and, right. and I think I think I just you know stepped up to the plate when I saw that. Like, well, I guess I'm the only one here, and. You know, and I'm not going to lie, there's probably now looking back, I'm like, you know, even just personality-wise, I love being in charge. Uh, I think I'm Mm -hmm. a great leader and manager. So there was probably a little bit of like, well, while the boss is away, the the mouse is going to play or whatever, the, you know, cat mouse, whatever. And so I, you know, stepped in and we just kind of, I said, guys, let's just pray. And I remember us praying and and I just kind of always look back at that night as like, that's the first time that I actually kind of like stepped into any sort of leadership in that spiritual realm, you know? Um, and so yeah. from then on, I just like, I never missed, man. Like every, every Wednesday, every Sunday, everything. I think the first thing they handed over to me is they put me in charge of, uh, the fifth and sixth grade class on Sunday morning. And, you know, that was, oh, and they hired me to be the janitor at the church that summer as well. And so that was my first job. I was 15, uh, you know, other than being wow. a DJ at the roller rink, uh, they hired me to be the uh, janitor at this church for a summer. And then, so from 15 all the way till I was 31, I only worked in the church world. Wow. Wow. And so in that process, because I remember a lot of people we're buzzing about Jonathan Bowles. I remember this, where it's like, have you heard him speak? Have you been around him? He is anointed. He is called. He is, I mean, you were, you know, for lack of a better term, just a very big fish in a small pond here yeah. out in the Midwest. And so, you know, when that buzz starts happening, there's got to be something in you that goes, oh, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is my purpose, Right. You know, I honestly, I can say this, that I never really even thought about it. it like, I, I never thought about it like, oh, this is it. Like, it just happened. Really? Right? It just, yeah. it, everything, it just, before I could even even think about that, like, I just never questioned it, you know, um, because mm-hmm. it was just, like, so automatic and so full on that I never really stopped to think, like, what am I doing here? <laughs> you know, there was. There was no other way. There was no other. There wasn't in another. There wasn't another option. Everything just began to take a back burner. Even you know, as I was approaching the end of high school, you know, I told my parents I was like, I want to go to Bible school because I'm going to be. A, I'm going to do ministry the rest of my life. I'm going to be a preacher. You know, that's that's what I'm doing. And and they knew that like, yeah, you probably will, but you're going to go to regular college too. And so I went to Central Missouri State in Warrensburg, but I drove in, I commuted, I went to class, left, went right back to the church. Like, I no experience in my life was by any means like the normal high school experience because I was homeschooled. The normal college experience, no, because right. I already was working full time as a youth pastor, you know, at that point. And, and so even in the like simple thing of like just making friends, like I, I was like Pastor Jonathan from a very early age, so there was no like, "Hi, I'm Jonathan. Let's be friends." 
you know? And so, I mean, that, right. everything was just very, it was so sucked up into that world that nothing else, nothing else existed. I, I pretty much like quit every sport that I was doing. Um, you know, I, I, I lived with my family until I graduated high school, but it was basically just because like, I'm just going to drop my stuff off here and this is where I'm going to come to sleep. And then I'm going to, you know, wake up to go do the prayer meeting at 6 a.m. And I won't be back till midnight after youth group. And, you know, it was, it was more uh, like a, a hotel almost, you know, but it, right. it, I never really, it never really, I, it was always easy for me and I knew I was good at it. And, you know, there were, had always been like a, you know, a very, you know, even from like the athletics and stuff, like a competitive side of me that's like, no, I'm really good at this. Like I'm better than that person. Like, you should give mm-hmm. me the microphone. I will give you guys the night of your life, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> right. So then moving forward a couple of years, you somehow land at Mega Church World outside, yeah. of, outside of Missouri. And yeah. so how old were you when that began? So I graduated college in May of 2005. Um, because I went to the two separate colleges at the same time, I did a bachelor's at Bible school and a bachelor's at CMSU. It took me about five years to get through school, uh, mostly because I was just taking, you know, the, the minimum load so I could work more at the church. So 2005, I would have been 24 years old, and that church that I grew up with in Louisiana, they called about six months before I graduated college, and they said, Jonathan, we'd like to have you come down here. And we either want you to help us produce a television show or we want you to start an internship program for us. And so I was like, yes. I mean, this was like, you know, a little league baseball player getting called up to play for his favorite major league team. You know, these were people that I like so like absurdly put on a pedestal like these. This family that ran this church down there, I mean, these were my heroes. These were the people that I fell asleep listening to their preaching every mm. night. These are the people that I would go down. And so, of course, when they ask you, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going. I'm doing this. Not even really. Well, yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't even a question of like, all right, God, what what should I do? Like, it was like a it was like a no brainer. You know, I just I went and the TV show thing didn't pan out. They wanted the internship really instead. And. So uh, that first first summer, uh, it was late August 2005, which is uh, right when Hurricane Katrina hit. We started this internship program from literally just the phrase, we want an internship program and you're the guy to do it. Like I had to figure out, well, what does that mean? What are What is an internship program? I had never seen one before. And from May when I arrived there to August when we started, somehow – we recruited 45 people to come and pay $5,000 <laughs> to basically be slaves at the church. Oh, my God. Um, and, uh, and so I remember, like, even starting out, like, I put together all the bunk beds, you know, for the whole dormitory by myself, you know, while because the, the hurricane was raging, but we had all these kids you know, coming in from all over the United States. And, you know, there was, we had opened a big shelter at the church and, you know, just Louisiana is turned on its ear completely. And and I'm just trying to build this internship thing. And, and so we started that in 2005. And um, by the next year, it had become the largest local church internship in America. And it was, you know, I was having to speak, you know, to the intern class, and, you know, upwards of, you know, five to ten times a week. I mean, so it was basically I would wake up 
early, early in the morning, you know, get my rhema word from God and then, you know, go feed all the little baby birds, you know, in the devotion, <laughs> you know, in chapel that morning. And, and, and I really loved it. You know, I, it was like the perfect fit. Uh, for my personality because I did get to speak, but then I was also this like, you know, kind of like coach, leader, mentor, you know, big brother type of thing too, where we were really helping these kids try to figure out what they wanted to do with their lives. Or at least that's what we said. <laughs> so, right. you know, that was, that was right. kind of the, the understanding. But so yeah, that happened in 2005. And, um, you know, I was there for about four-ish years. Yeah, four, four years. And by the end of that, you were, I mean, how many times were you in the pulpit every week? I mean, you were traveling, you were speaking, you were you were in high demand by the end of that. Yeah, well, let me say this about that church. That church, there was, you know, big, I mean, it is like the definition of nepotism, right? Um, so on a on a big platform, as far as like, uh, you know, speaking to the entire congregation on a Sunday or something like that, I never got to preach there unless your last name was the same name as the senior pastor or you were very famous, you know, you didn't preach on Sundays, but you know, they would put us up in front of, uh, you know, the people, we would do the announcements and do that kind of transition time out of worship into the thing. And, and so we were given a lot of opportunities there, but then whenever we would have the youth conferences every year, they would turn us loose and they would let us speak at those. And, and there would be anywhere between five to 8,000 people uh, at those. But, uh, you know, and yeah, I was, you know, traveling around and, and doing, uh, you know, one of the things that we really specialized in at that church were those encounter retreat deals. And so we would get, you know, called up and, and we would get to take a couple of interns and we'd, you know, fly to Atlanta and go do an encounter for this church or fly to Seattle and do this. And, and, um, and so, and then also because the internship grew and was so successful, um, or at least successful in, in that world, there was a lot of people that called and were like, Hey, how do we start this internship thing? And so some of the, the internships now that are lo- the largest ones, I was the phone call that they were making to be like, Hey, how did you get that many? You know, when they were like, you know, 10 or 20 and now they've got like 1500, you know, interns at their thing now. It's, you know, they're, wow. A lot of I, w- I was in on the ground floor of a lot of those internships that are that are now just gigantic and and it was enjoyable you know but it was that church was very big and influential and you know yeah I got to fly on private jets and accompany people here and there and you know was driving around the the top speakers in Christendom you know just this was this was the big time for me but then it all started to fall yeah. <laughs> Right. Yes. You picked the perfect segue there because I'm listening to this. And, you know, it's funny. As long as I've known you, I've never really sat down and heard your whole story from beginning to end. I'm really close with your wife, so I've heard her yeah. side of all of this. But it's really, right. it's really like, eye-opening for me to hear this from beginning to end. There are so many things that I'm just like, listening to you going, okay, the writing was on the wall for this to be perfect. Like the yeah. writing on the wall was for this to be your life and for you to live and breathe and die doing this. Oh, and absolutely. so the irony here is that that's not what happened and that's not the end of the story. So, right. so what, what sparked the unraveling? When did that start? Well, so let me, let me back up a little bit and say that my personal relationship with God was 
I want to say that, like, the way that I related to him was in, like, a way that God is, like, a really, really good coach, but he can run pretty hot. And so you don't Mm -hmm. want to make him mad. He demands the best. And, you know, it it was – I was so hard on myself. You know, I got to – you know, I can't miss a day on the Bible reading plan. You know, reading through the Bible every three or four months. Just, you know, insane Mm. hours that I would try to keep. And now the the church that I was at there in Louisiana, they are notorious for the discipline and the discipleship and the crazy devotion. You know, I mean, there was, you know, at least two prayer meetings a week on top of three services on top. I mean, and just in the summertime, they would do a thing called the summer challenge where instead of on summer vacation, they would do a summer challenge where you had to read through the entire Bible in, I think it was 12 weeks, and there was a a fasting component, there was a prayer meeting component, and then there was an evangelism component where you had to, I, I think it was 100 souls in 12 weeks that you had to that you had to win or something like that. And so I'm talking just like insanity, Whoa. right? Like this was basically You've got to be like, kidding me. This was, right, this this was, was a like, real thing. Right. This was like CrossFit, you know, like, you know, those CrossFitters that are just like psychotic. (laughs) Like this is, that was the environment that I grew up in. That was where I was. And so this is what happened where it all started to fall apart. Um, And I could get into some really like dirty, dirty, as far as like the way that I was treated personally by my leaders and some of the things, but that would just open up kind of a big can of worms. But I'll say this, that I never went on a date until I was 26. Six years old. Not, not a single one. date. Not a single date until I was 26 years old. When I moved to that big church in Louisiana, I, I was told, like, hey, let's, you know, take that first year that you're here and just, you know, don't do not do any dating or anything like that. Just, you know, focus on building this thing. So I, I, I was like, oh, yeah, of course, no problem. Well, you know, like, I've been 24 years. What's one more, you know? Um, and so wow. finally, when I was, quote, unquote, released to date, uh, and my uh, and my girlfriend was approved uh, <laughs> by the by the leadership. I you know started oh. dating this girl, and you know four months in, it's because this is the first girl that I've ever spent any time with at all. Uh, I'm of course in complete love, smitten to the max. <laughs> think that this is it. Also, you know, have it driven into my skull that like the the first girl that you date is the one that you're going to marry because you know that was. My mom was just never okay with me ever dating anyone, <laughs> you know, and so that was something that they always said was like, you're not going to date a bunch of people. You're going to date one and you're going to know, and that's going to be the one. And I'm like, oh my God. And so this, this was the oh, one, yeah. right? Yeah. But yeah. I, I just, Oh, I know this speech well. Yes. Right. I clearly remember one day waking up and just feeling like this is not it. And it was just like, just kind of like this disturbance in the force, right? Like I just, I didn't yeah. quite, like it something just didn't feel right. And then my pastor called me up that night said, hey, come over to the house. And he was like, this just doesn't seem right to me. And so it kind of like weirdly confirmed it, even though he was kind of like a weird part of why it happened in the first place. And, and, and it just was like, okay. And, and so I had to break up with this girl. And I didn't want to. Like, I I was mm. so heartbroken, but my devotion 
to my leaders and my devotion to God was so much more than even like the physical and like, you know, emotional well-being of my own person. Like it wasn't even a question of like, well, maybe I'm not going to break up. No, it was like uh, immediately, like two days later, you know, and I just Mm. remember being super heartbroken over that. And it was kind of like this perfect storm because our pastor's wife was diagnosed with cancer and it became very serious, very fast. And then like every good church, it was the beginning of the year. So there was a fast. And so you (laughs) coupled a huge, like emotional trauma to my heart of breaking up with the first girl that I ever dated slash thought I loved. Right. I had no idea what that really meant because I had no relationship experience at all. You couple that with the traumatic thing going on with the pastor's wife, and then you've got this fast going on. Of course, old brother John here, he's going full blast. He's going to do a 40-day fast, nothing but liquid. Like, 40 days. 40, 40 days. days. Like, we're not talking smoothies. We're talking water or, like, a very light juice, 40 days gung-ho. And I so, can't even. I can't even. Yeah. No, it was it was crazy. But that I was, you know, I was in the Navy SEALs of of Christianity. Like I was like this is I got this. And I went into it with yeah. basically this attitude of God, I want answers. Like mm-hmm. I want I want to be able to lay hands on the sick and see them recover. I want to know why I can't, you know, marry this girl. I want to know like what's what's the deal? Why am I feeling such heartbreak right now? And so you know, tragically, our pastor's wife died, like, on day 20 of the 40-day fast. Oh, gosh. And through some weird, super religious, twisted idea, I am immediately overcome with guilt that for some reason it is my fault that she did not make it because I didn't do mm. enough. And so that made me feel mm. weird. You can still in this, I'm in that weird, like, heartbreak phase anyway. And so I, you know, dropped down to about 130 pounds, which is about, you know, five pounds less than I weigh right now. Um, that's not true. I weigh much more than 135 pounds. Um, hey, you know, this is a blind conversation. You can say whatever you right? want and no one will know I'm the like, difference. That joke normally works when you can see me. Right, right. <laughs> um, oh, that's funny. So uh, I remember calling my mom on the 40th night, like it was probably like midnight, and I was in complete and total despair, man. Just I remember just mm. being curled up in the fetal position on the floor, just bawling my eyes out, just completely broken heartbroken, you know, riddled with all this, like, crazy religious guilt, basically having spent the last 40 days, like, just, like, beating myself up, you know, in the name of Mm -hmm. trying to get some sort of breakthrough. And, you know, I don't know what I would call this now, necessarily, but back then, I would say that it was the voice of God that just rattled deep within me on that 40th night while I'm laying there. And the phrase that I'll never forget because it just, like, burned in me so deeply was, are you done yet? And Mm. I just was like, that's it, man. Like, I quit. Like, if that's all I got at the end of of this, the biggest sacrifice I've ever done, God, I'm kind of mad at you, man. 
Like, this is, this is not good. Like, what, yeah, I'm done. I quit. And so what's crazy is from that point on, I kind of just decided to, like, quit a little bit in my heart. Like, I'm not going to do it if I don't feel it. And now, granted, going from, like, psychotic Navy SEAL Christian to, like, like totally quitting in in one night, like, that didn't happen. But, like, very gradually I noticed myself, like, skipping days on the Bible reading plan or kind of beginning mm. to just question everything. and. It was uh, interesting, too, that during that time, and this was the other thing, too, is because the pastor's wife had just died, he was kind of out, of out of pocket. He wasn't around for about six to nine months after his wife passed away. And what was interesting is, like, because his, you know, iron fist of rulership was not there, it kind of allowed this, like, leeway for me to begin to ask questions and not being constantly bombarded with, you know, towing the party line and always being challenged to do this and do this and do this, do this. So it was kind of like this kind of peaceful moment that, you know, I stepped into when it came to being able to, you know, ask some questions. And during this time, someone recommended the book. uh, I can't remember what it's called. It's one of those Joseph Prince books. And it was like the first one that they ever released in America. And I remember reading that book and being like, oh, my God, what? What is this grace thing? This is amazing. And, and that, that was the, that was the start. And it just kind of started building from there. And like, you know, and so needless to say, my time at that church, like you could start the countdown like instantly yeah. right from there. And so I was probably, you know, after that 40 day fast was done, I was probably at that church for another I want to say maybe 18 months. Um, and during that time, my, my difference there at that church is, is a very theological difference. My ideas about God were changing. I was still very Christian, still very Jesus-centered, but I, it was more in that, you know, kind of wide-open grace that got very into, like, signs and wonders and things like that to where that last year of the internship program that we were running, I mean, we were have I mean, there we would send the interns out to lunch and they would come back with an empty wheelchair from someone that they wow. met, you know, on, on their lunch break. And they were, I mean, we were just like wild banshees, you know, just like running around wow. the town and signs and wonders. And, and just, I mean, it was crazy, right? Well, the pastor, after he returned kind of from his, you know, his hiatus, he sits me down and he says, I'm beginning to see, you know, people, or, or I'm beginning to see sons in my internship that don't look like me. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? You know? And, you know, there, you know, comes the, the you don't have the spirit of this house. And if you're going to be here, you're oh, going to, no. you know, be under my thumb and it's going to be tough. You know, you, we, you're going to lead this. Like I want you to lead it and, and all of this and, and, and really shut it down. And so, and, and skipping through all the dynamics of that and, and our relationship and stuff, like, you know, I, they were very cool. They were like, I, they asked me, like, for the first time, I was, you know, five years of working there and, you know, probably 25 years of knowing the family. Like, they said, well, what do you feel God is saying to you? And I said, well, I, I feel like a fish out of water. I feel like I got to get out of here. Like, you guys are headed this way, mm-hmm. and I feel like I'm more headed that way. And, and they, you know, released me to go, you know, now. 
after the fact there was lots of emails and being blacklisted and rumors and all kinds of stuff that went with the with that and um you know so so that was like the biggest that was like the first big crossroads thing was at the end of that forty day fast that just kind of launched me into this like beginning to question my theology and and open up to different things and to change it and everything and really that was like the first step down the rabbit hole. Um, you know, that I'm still falling down, you know, and um, yeah. because, it, I, and I would say that, you know, uh, there was so many good things, you know, happened while I was there. I mean, that's where I met Kirby, uh, my wife. Um, and so and she was a huge catalyst of helping me because she didn't grow up in that Navy SEALs type of environment. She grew up in that, in, in a church that was very much more like what I was leaning into then. And so, you know, she was very helpful to me and, you know, um, I left that church there, didn't have a job. I had, you know, some of my, you know, mentors and things. They were on the phone and calling like, hey, this youth pastor, you got him. He's he's one of the top guys. You got to, you know, get him on your staff and everything. So I really had, you know, uh, kind of a blank check for wherever I wanted to go next. Um, And through, you know, some crazy happenstance, uh, you know, we end up in in Austin, Texas uh, at at a large church there. And uh, because I, I, at that time, I knew that I wanted to do something else, but I didn't know what it was. Um, I still wanted to be, a, you know, a pastor. I still wanted to be a minister, a communicator. I still want to do that. And, and at that point, I thought that it could only mean, like, oh, well, I need to have my own church one day. But it didn't feel like the right time because, like, I was, you know, I wanted to get married, and we just kind of needed to have a, a safe place to land. And and um, and this pastor, like, the relationship with him was much more open and and had a lot more free reign and everything like that. So uh, this was, this was you know, just seemed like a good fit at the time. So we moved to Texas, or we get married, moved to Texas, literally land from our honeymoon, you know, in the new city. And, and that's, you know, kind of where we started at that second church, which was kind of like the, the second crossroads, I guess. Yeah, and when you landed in that second church, it's almost like, at least from my what I've observed, the storyline being, it's almost like a repeat, but just <laughs> yeah. different characters For, involved. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I, I would say that the it, it was definitely a repeat of of that same scenario, but for a completely different set of reasons. This was where I really began to see. At this church, I was given much more influence. I was given much more authority. They let me speak on Sundays all the time. Um, you know, so I was speaking sometimes, you know, 10 times a week in front of anywhere from 50 to, to 5,000 people. I mean, just ridiculous. Wow. And um, and and really, I was, you know, one of the executive team members. And the thing is, I really got to see really, really far behind the curtain of, of all the things mm-hmm. that I had, you know, kind of been sheltered from before about, you know, just even the business of church. And that's yeah. when it kind of started to just get like a little bit like, man, this just does not seem right. And, you know, when we got there, the the youth group was maybe about, you know, 75, 100 kids. And at the end of the first year, we were having upwards of 1,500 young people every every week. Oh, my gosh. And and then the crazy thing was it was happening in about 25 different locations because we, you know, when we first got there, the pastor says, do whatever you want to do. Go for it. You, you upset people, change everything, do whatever you want. You've got full license. I trust you. Go to town. 
And so we started releasing these interns to open basically like churches in their backyards. And some people would have wow. upwards of 50, 75 kids in their neighborhood showing up. And, and it was just huge. But then after the first year, the pastor sat me down and was like, Hey, this is, this is not good. This is, this is not what we want to see. The, the right kids are not coming to the youth group. It's, it's, we got a lot of troublemakers. We got a lot of bad kids. And, you know, a lot of our, a lot of our families here, their kids don't want to come to youth group anymore because of who started to show up. And, you know, literally, like they said, we want the football players, we want the cheerleaders, we want the, you know, the good students, you know, and some of these other kids, you know, they can still come, but we're not going to focus on them. We're not going to gear it towards them. We want to attract this right kind of people. And at that moment, I was like, oh, okay, this just became a job. And right. I'm going to do it exactly because, okay, this is obviously not what I'm going to do the rest of my life. And so it's like at that point, you know, one year in, I start, you know, basically planning the exit already. And we were there for another, uh, you know, three or two and a half years after that. And um, the the final straw is I woke up when I was 30 on my 30th birthday. And I just had this overwhelming feeling of, is this it? Like, this is as far Mm -hmm. as I ever thought for my life. We had a gigantic house in Austin, Texas. We had, you know, fancy cars in the driveway. You know, we had anything we wanted to do. If I, if I would have said, hey, I want to start a church in downtown Austin, they would have helped us. They were talking about sending us over to England to plant a satellite campus in, you know, the wealthiest district outside of London. And could have done anything. But basically it came down to, like, I'd rather be homeless and unemployed to continue to do this. Because it just started, it just started feeling bad. You know, I was getting paid with money that they were – getting from people by saying, if you don't give 10% of your income, God's going to curse your money. (laughs) And I was taking my wife on vacations and living in a big old house, you know, being paid with money that was given by maybe single moms that can't pay their rent or, you know, Mm. given by, uh, you know, a grandma that, you know, is trying to take care of herself. You know what I'm saying? And I know that's like getting like splitting hairs and you can look at that so many different ways, but I I just was done. I was done with the way the church was being run. It didn't feel right. I was tired of having to to look at, you know, a kid in the youth group who's bawling his eyes out because, you know, he has two moms and the counseling, the director of the counseling center just said that his two moms can't come to church anymore. And they can't serve in the church. Oh. They, they can they can come and they can sit in the service, but they they can't be on this team or that team. They can't be on the worship team. And, and they're he's crying like why? Like my moms are so upset about this, and and me having to like, you know, and I'm untangling this web myself, and I and I feel like I'm to the point where I'm like, man, that just doesn't seem right. And but I have to toe the party line of like, well, you know, it's a little bit, you know, and I don't even know what to say. And so I just I had to I had to leave. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, yeah, I basically had the same kind of talk with, with that guy. Uh, and it was like, I don't know what I want to do, but I do think the next move is to move to Los Angeles and, and we're going to see what happens. And, um, so that's, that's how we ended up out here. <laughs> yeah. And so you, you pack up and you leave and you start on this entirely different venture of what you've known as your existence. Yeah. And, you know, and and I and I'm listening to myself say this, going, "Oh, this sounds like a romantic fresh start, kind of in the movie when the scene changes and it's like <laughs> sunny skies and ocean and the wind is in your hair and you and your wife are driving, right?" But the reality is, 
you're leaving and upsetting an entire world that you've built. Yeah, and yeah. so how did they – what was the response you received from them? Because I, I imagine that that was probably the hardest part of the journey. Well, let me say this. It was kind of strange because of the way, you know, in church they kind of always have to, you know, kind of do the public relations spin on everything. So it was announced that Jonathan and Kirby are moving to Los Angeles to start a church, which is never what I said. But that's what they announced from the pulpit. And so my last day uh, of employment and my last day of, you know, being any sort of pastor on staff or anything was October 1st of 2012. Well, we weren't able to sell our house and move until – uh, January of 2013. So we oh, had about wow. six months in there of living, you know, three miles from the church <laughs> and, you know, or living a mile from the church in that same city and, and, and trying to figure things out. And it was, and it was also, it was, it was weird during that time too, because I thought like, okay, I've never made money any other way than speaking in church. Like that's all I've ever done. Yeah. And so what do yeah. I do now? And so I had the idea of like, oh, well, I'll just go speak in, in churches. I'll just, I'll just kind of travel and, and do that and speak and, you know, and I, and I'll be able to, you know, open up a little bit more about my beliefs and everything like that. And, you know, people might be into it, you know, cause I'm just a guest speaker and stuff. And so we started booking up the calendar and I did that. And, you know, going back to Cornerstone and Blue Springs was one of my first stops on my, on my new speaking tour that I was going to do. And after the first service, that first weekend, I just knew this ain't it. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the my bank account was I wasn't getting paychecks anymore. And you know, I've got these house renovations I still have to do. And I know once we sell the house, like we'll have some some cushion there. But what do I do now? What do I do with my life? Um, and of course, you know, when you leave a church, especially when you're in a, in a, in a higher profile position and then you leave and it's not like an official send off, you know, where they make a deal, like it's, you're out, you're blacklisted, you're, you're persona non grata, it's over. And then, you know, rumors start flying, you know, I, and I think those rumors can be kind of fun though, especially in retrospect, but if you can, if you can kind of not take it so seriously, when we left that first church when Kirby and I, when we were engaged and, and about to move to Texas, there was a rumor going around that Kirby was pregnant with someone else's child, but I, being a good guy, was going to marry her anyway and and uh, raise the child like it was my own, which sounds much like Mary and Joseph. So, I mean, much um, like it, much like it, yeah. right? Yeah. But I mean, it, it's just crazy, and, and and then you know, all and because of the vagueness of the announcement, and then people, I mean, it's just church people are the worst. Like, and you know that, you know that, like, yeah. It is, yeah, they are the worst, especially when it comes to anybody being different. And the problem was too is that I was very, very well liked. And people were coming up to me, like if we'd see them in the grocery store, they're like, hey, whatever you do, we want to do that, you know. And mm. I'm like, well, I don't know what I'm doing, you know. <laughs> like They're like, well, aren't you playing the <laughs> church in Los Angeles? And I'm like, I don't know, you know. And, and so we, I mean, we had to, like, tell people, like, leave us alone. Like, we're not – we don't know what we're doing yet, you know. Um, and, yeah, yeah, it sounds like, a, you know, you would think there would be, like, romantic, fresh start, like, finally free and – 
Yeah, it was probably like that for about two hours of the of the drive after we sold our house and almost everything we owned. But then the harsh reality set in of like, who am I now? Yeah, what do I do? Now what? Because I'm not well, Pastor Jonathan age- anymore. <laughs> yeah, what's that age-old question of when you strip out all of your titles, all of your hats, all of your jobs, so to speak, that you're good at and that you know how to do well and make people happy with, when you take yeah. all that away and it's just skin and bones, what is there to you? Exactly. And unfortunately, I think in the church world, we set people up to not go there. Right. Because going there requires authenticity. It requires vulnerability. It requires, oh, my gosh, we all might not be cookie cutters exactly the same. And then what do we do with those differences? And you lived that. You totally lived that. So after you leave and you go to California, how did people react to you? Because I know you became a lot more vocal about your beliefs and your differences with the status quo party line. So how did they respond to you? Well, for about a year, we were just totally quiet. And we didn't move to California right away. We actually spent a year living with some friends in Louisiana and really just kind of traveling around. And honestly, like I kind of called it my apology tour (laughs) because I had to go and I had to like fix some relationships that I destroyed, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and that was a really beautiful time. Um, You know, I'm all in all this like personal turmoil of like, who am I now? What am I doing and stuff? But I knew at least the, the people that you've wronged and now that you feel like you've changed and you've become different and you believe differently and, and you're like deconstructing all this stuff and, and, you know, you need to go make right what you need to make right. And even during that time, I wrote a, a blog that went somewhat viral, not like Anna Demo viral, but, you know, viral for me. Oh, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was, it, I just called it an apology and, and I just, just bared my soul and apologized for everything that I had ever done. Um, you know, in, in ministry that was hurtful and that I thought now was, was wrong and incorrect. And, um, a lot of people started reading that even if they didn't know me. And it was very healing for them because these are the things that they always wanted to hear, have their pastor say to them or, or their leader or their parents or whatever. And they never got to hear that from their parents, but reading it from, you know, my website, you know, helped them some way. But, um, you know, it was, for that year, we just floated, man, and it was the darkest, darkest year of my life. Like, we just, because mm. I was clueless, like, what do I do now? Like, I'm Googling jobs. Like, maybe I like animals. Maybe I should work at a zoo. Like, I just, I have no idea what to do, you know? And um, yeah. so eventually, I, you know, a year later, we end up in Los Angeles, and um, and then I started my podcast. I started the Slingshot Show. And that's when I just kind of started opening up about all this kind of stuff. And I think because we were just kind of quiet for a year, I think we lost mm-hmm. a lot of people in that year where people just didn't really care. And um, and so mm-hmm. I, I think that it's very important that there is an important part of, like, if you do feel like you need to make a gigantic change in your life, that, like, it's okay to, like, kind of, like, go off the map for that and resurface later like i feel like in you know in this age now especially with like facebook everybody's you know we're so happy to announce that we're da 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 and like for a year i was just like people didn't i mean we were like ghosts you know like we were living in our friend's guest room in louisiana and 
you know, taking care of Kirby's grandparents. Like that's, you know, it was just a very quiet, quiet time. And so when we came back out and I put this podcast out, um, there, there really wasn't a ton of, uh, backlash because, you know, a lot of the crazy people that were, you know, all up our butts, <laughs> you know, they, they had kind of already right. died off. And, um, but of course there's always going to be some, and I'll tell you this right now, you, you, there are two things. If you want to get people riled up is state some different beliefs about homosexuality and state some different beliefs about the Bible. Those two things, you can do anything else. You can, you can, you can touch any sacred yep. cow, but if you make burgers out of those two, and really it's mostly the Bible one, uh, because we had a lot of friends that like kind of stuck with us through the whole transition and, and, and they would even say like, you know, Jonathan, you know, like, you know, I, I see where you're going. You're kind of seeking and searching and changing your mind about stuff and, and everything. And, you know, I think that, you know, you'll explore that and maybe kind of come back to, you know, kind of the middle ground that's, you know, a little bit radical, but not that radical. And, and, but then as soon as I started opening my mouth about my thoughts on the Bible, that, that was over. I was getting phone calls left and right. And they're like, you're off. You're wrong. This is dangerous all that kind of stuff and um and then yeah well and i think i think you touched on something there that's so transparent about that community which is fear and i know you've talked about this in your podcast of fear and religion and all the ties between the two and you know the bible and everybody interpreting it the exact same way feels very safe to that community Right. right that's what makes them feel like all is well in the world we are safe. We have all the answers, and we like it that way. God is predictable. We know exactly who's in, who's out. I feel safe within those terms. And you start doing the domino effect of taking one piece out at a time, like, well, what about this part? Because I kind of think differently. And yeah. all of a sudden, the responses of panic, I, I mean, it, it just is like a wildfire. Yeah. And And so – if you don't mind just sharing just a little bit about that, just like how you've seen letting go of fear and how freeing that's been for you, because I know that that's been a big, a big part of your journey is letting go of that afraid piece of what if I let go of this? Right. <laughs> what, what, you know, how that has yeah. done for you. Well, let me say this. If I, one thing that I have been accused of a lot is being anti-church or anti-Christianity uh, uh, and being anti things. And I, I never say anything negative, uh, about, about those things. But if there's one thing that I'm anti, it is anti fear. And that's the only thing that yeah. I'm against. Unfortunately, fear is the foundation of every religion. That's, that's all it is. Yeah. Religion is great stories and then a framework within within that which you live your life. It's basically stories and a sense, you know, and mm-hmm. that's, that's not, and, and it's all man-made, right? And so you start coming out against anything that's fearful, anything that would make you go, uh, you know, uh, make you worried or, or scared about something. Oh, no, I can't believe that. What about this? Like, if you start feeling that way, that is the number one sign that you should keep going because that's your boundary. That's that's where you have built a wall. That's where you have a fence. That's what you need to keep going past. And so I've always referred to it like as Jenga, you know, like that game where you, you know, pull the blocks yeah. out and everything yep. falls. 
I would say that, like, even back when I, you know, had that moment of, you know, the last night of the 40-day fast, that's when I started playing Jenga, and I haven't stopped ever since. It's like, what what beliefs do I have that I can do without? What, what beliefs do I have that I'm holding on to are, are weighing this thing down? And, and, and I remember stink, distinctly, the, the last time that I ever felt like a, oh, no, like, what, I can't, I can't. I can't believe that. That's wrong. Like, that's the foundation of everything that, and because I, I heard someone on a podcast say, you know, uh, do you believe in a literal resurrection? And, and the guy said, sometimes, but no, not really. And I was like, oh, I mean, just gasp, right? But in that right. moment, that's when this Jenga thing popped in my mind. I just saw this picture and I saw this big hand removing this this piece and it was like what you you can take that one out and everything doesn't fall apart <laughs> you know and and so yeah. It's, yeah. you have to if, if there if, if there's ever a moment if there's ever a decision that you're having to make or a or a feeling that you're feeling or a worry that you find maybe because of a an interaction that you have with a with a you know a, a person from your old church or a parent or or a friend that's being a little bit too nosy and controlling like if there's ever that like oh no feeling like you gotta follow through with that because that right there if you can get past that get on the other side of that that that's the breakthrough and it's not about like deconstructing to get rid of everything it's deconstructing what you were handed like what you were built because that's the thing like as human beings unless you're like a completely like abandoned orphan from from birth you are handed a like pre-assembled worldview and Right. It is it is step number one of the hero's journey to deconstruct that which you are handed and start building your own life, building your own belief. Right. And and it's not right. a I, I think I can't remember who said it, but the opposite of faith is certainty. And that's all religion and, and Christianity, all all of them. That's they are just ways for people to get certainty. And that's not faith. And it takes no faith whatsoever <laughs> to, to live a certain life. And so if you think you have all the answers, if you can open your Bible and point to chapter and verse of, hey, this is what I believe and this is it. God said it. That settles it. I, you know, whatever. Like, honey, like you are living half a life because, and that's not faith. It takes no faith to believe that. What really takes faith is to keep going down the rabbit hole to see where it leads because that is what spirituality is. Spirituality is not having a set of beliefs. Spirituality is the journey. You know, that, that's what it's like. It's, it's mm-hmm. the engaging with the divine. You know, there's a great uh, guy, uh, kind of a guru type guy named Ram Dass, and he says that, you know, like all religions are, are man's attempt to describe a great spiritual experience that they had. <laughs> and, and that's, that's, that's so what true. it is. And yeah. in, instead of clinging to someone else's experience, why don't you just go have your own? And that is what I'm trying to get people to do. That That is what I'm doing. That is what I would encourage people to do is, look, like, what are you afraid of? I mean, that, and that's, 
but we kind of drilled into us. And so I understand, like, I was in, in very, very fear-based ministries, and, and there was fear of everything. And, and that fueled me for a long time, and I even, I led like that. And, I, and, and so it takes a while to get the fear out of you, and it takes a lot of courage to keep moving forward despite those feelings of, like, panic of, like, oh, no, did I just, did I just do that? Did I just think that? Like, what? You know, and, and reading books that like, you know, would have been contraband back in the, back in the church days and, you know, right. and, and listening to an atheist and agreeing with him on several things. And, you know, there, there's truth everywhere, but you, you just have to open your eyes and be brave enough to let yourself go anywhere and go everywhere and just know that like, it's safe. Like the world is a safe place. You know, it's the, it's inside the walls of the institution where everything is dangerous, you know, because that's what you're taught. Out in the world, it's, man, experience it all, feel it all, love it all, you know, just go to town. But it really is about having your own experience and not clinging to someone else's experience that has been handed down for thousands of years and, you know, interpreted different ways and enforced, you know, by so many different people. Well, and one of the things that I see fear does and things that I see in my life that have been marked by fear is when it's always drawing a line that builds a wall, like you said oh, earlier. Yeah. Like it is constantly drawing a line of, nope, you're over there and I'm over here. Right. And one of my favorite um, passages in the Bible is where it talks about love and fear being opposites and mm-hmm. how love can't be where fear is. And love is that constant force that seems to be building bridges and not building walls. And so, uh, you know, because I, like you, I've had to deconstruct a lot of fear messages. I've had them all through my life. I grew up very similar. So they were everywhere. Everywhere I looked was a line. Everywhere I looked was a wall. Everywhere I looked was a fence. And learning to embrace this idea of love that says I don't have to be afraid of what's over there. I can build a bridge to connect over there and find some commonality. And that's just it. The world is filled with people who are all very much the same, with the same fears, the same hopes, the same dreams, the same insecurities, all of it. And learning to see people through those eyes instead of fear eyes is so freeing. It's just it makes the world colorful again. Yeah, I mean, I'll just be honest. I mean, you're going to like those people out in the world a lot better than the ones you're surrounded with now. <laughs> oh, I hear that so often. I hear that, and that is tragically sad, but it is very accurate. Oh, gosh, that's so true. Yeah. Okay, and so what would you – go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was just going to say, what would you say to someone who's listening to this and who is feeling all of the same similar things you were feeling when you were like, wait a second, this can't be it? Yeah. And I think I need to make some big changes. What would you say to that person who is feeling very suffocated and trapped and not thinking that they have permission to go down a rabbit hole? Yeah. Uh, first, call me. Let's talk about it. <laughs> That's what I would Love say it. to them. Um, no, let me, let me, this is, this is kind of what I, what I see is when you get to that point and you start feeling that way, Number one, there's a couple of temptations. The first temptation is to just shut down. And I can't tell you how many people I know that they still work at church, 
maybe even have their own churches, have their kids, you know, the whole deal. And they've built this whole thing, and they don't believe in any of it, but it's all they know. And instead of rocking the boat, they just kind of shut down and move forward, and they just kind of go numb. That's that's one way, and they just never leave. And that's, I don't know about you, that does not sound fun to me. The second yeah. thing, the second option is for you to just throw it all away, and you just kind of like, baby out with the bath water, destroy the bathroom, burn down the house, and you just kind of <laughs> pretend it pretend it never existed, uh, and just be mad and bitter about it. And unfortunately, the people that do like deconstruct and, and they just deconstruct and then they stop and they just are pissed that they were ever in that house to begin with. And I would say that that's the majority. That's yeah. And that's so sad. Those are the people that I care about so much are the people that, mm-hmm. and, and, it, and because there is a lot of anger, like there is abuse. Like if you, like if you grew up in this, I, there is, if you go to a psychologist, they will tell you, you have been abused. It is spiritual yep. abuse. Yep. It is, and it is, it's a real thing. And you have every right to be angry, every right to be mad. I can't tell you how many times I've, you know, cried and raged and cussed, you know, the the people that, you know, ruled my life for so long and the, and the things that I missed out on because of my devotion to those people when I was thinking that it was really devotion to God, when it was really just me, you know, striving so desperately for the approval and, and pleasing these people that were in leadership over me. Like, you have every right to be mad and angry, and please don't skip that part of the process. But right. you gotta you gotta move on. Like you have to deconstruct it, but like don't throw everything away, man. Like I, the thing is, I will never be able to wash off the fact that for the first thirty-one years of my life, that was my story. It's never going away. And you know, one of my heroes, someone that I I listened to his tapes all growing up. But then he disappeared off my radar, and then now he's back, is Bishop Carlton Pearson. He's really one of the first guys that he had a huge church in the 80s and early 90s. But somewhere in the mid, uh, you know, late 90s, he comes out and says that, like, I don't think there's, you know, this, I don't think hell's a real deal. And he started going down the rabbit hole, and he's still falling down it, and he still speaks you know, in certain churches, he calls himself a metatostal and, you know, still does the whole deal. And I, but, wow. and, and I heard him, you know, say that one time, he's like, I'm never going to be able to change my upbringing. I can't change. That's where I came from. I can change where I'm going, but I'm always going to relate to the Bible. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm never going to know yeah. the Hindu text better than I know the Christian text. I'm never going to know the Quran better. I'm ne- it's like I'm not converting to something here. Like this is where I came from, but it doesn't have to be where you stay. Right. And so deconstruct, take it all down, but please, for the love of God, don't stop. Don't let the anger and the bitterness make you. And, and I just see a lot of people like they just, they, this is kind of what it looks like. It's like they're in their like late 20s, early 30s, and they're like, starting to you know feel free and they're like oh i'm out of that now and they just start drinking a lot and they just that's what they do they just go out and they just get drunk a lot i've I've seen that and that's fine like if that's what you want to do 
but everything is just so numb. It's like you're yeah. just as numb as the person that stayed on the inside. And they might be acting it out in this most holy, reverent way, and you're acting it out in the, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah type of way. But, like, you're both equally numb. You both shut off that little voice inside, that, that witness inside of you that says, mm, let's, let's, let's explore, let's go see something, which is the true, the true spirituality, that true part of you, your real soul. You know, and then the third option mm. would be to just keep going, man. Just keep going and don't, like, I, I can't tell you the hard road that you are, that you have in front of you because people, they just want you to be the same. That's, they don't, they have you in your box. They have it labeled neatly on their shelf. And if you get out of that box, there's going to be, there's going to be hell to pay. And I wish I could say that, like, Oh, it's so much easier out here. It's better. You know, you're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Like, yeah, eventually. But, honey, you're going to have some hellfire and brimstone to get through. But you just have to understand it's their problem, not yours. They're the ones that are freaking out. You've done nothing wrong. I I was telling uh, somebody the other day, I was like, yeah, you can't move forward in your life, like, in the right direction without disappointing people. But when you disappoint someone, that just means that they made an appointment for you in their mind, but they didn't tell you about it, <laughs> you know? Like, and you have, <laughs> you've, so missed, yeah. you've missed the appointment that they made for you. And, but it's, that's fine. That's their problem. It's not yours. Yes, you're going to upset your mother. You're going to break your father's heart. But you know what? Your parents are going to die. They're going to be dead. And when they're dead, do you want to be left with the life they wanted for you or do you want to live your own? And I know that's, like, terrible and morbid, Mm -hmm. but, like, guys, you know, to quote the great (laughs) musical philosopher, John Foreman of Switchfoot, this is your life. Are you who you want to be? (laughs) Exactly. Well said. Well said. Okay, so you mentioned earlier people can call you, people can reach out to you. I know that that is that is definitely a passion of yours and something yeah. that you feel very purposed to do is to walk people through deconstruction, searching seasons of life. So how do they connect with you? What are ways that people can reach out to you? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm laughing because just yesterday I got a phone, a voice message on my phone that said, hey, Jonathan, I just wanted to say thanks. You know, you really – you know, you really helped me. I'm actually on my way to Peru to do my first ayahuasca ceremony. <laughs> I was like, oh, Lord. <laughs> I was like, you keep going down that rabbit hole, baby. <laughs> oh, that's so hysterical. If you, if you need recommendations for ayahuasca resorts, I, I, I can point you in the right direction. Um, no, okay, so I am right now, I am not actively doing my podcast anymore because uh, last year I, I took over a business. Because uh, that was one thing I needed to I needed to find out if I could like make money without speaking, you know. Um, yeah. And it turns out I can. Uh, and so the last couple of years we've really been focused on business stuff in, instead of the podcast. But there are 205 episodes uh, of the Slingshot Show, and you can do that. You can see those slingshotshow.com. It's on iTunes and Stitcher and all the places that you can get podcasts. So you can listen to those. Um, and even if you start at the beginning, you'll even see my uh, a lot of uh, deconstructing even within that podcast because guys that's the thing 
still going down the rabbit hole, even today. You never stop. That's the point. That is spirituality. Spirituality is continuing to fall down the rabbit hole. You're never going to reach a place where you're like, ah, here I am. I have made it. These are my new beliefs. No. (laughs) Like, just your statement of faith, burn it. You don't need one. Because if unless it's constantly changing, then you're not doing it right. Um, so my email address is johnsonbowles at gmail.com, um, slingshotshow.com. Those are, those are the places you can get in touch with me. And for real, like, I'll, I'll talk to anybody anytime. This is, this is the, the number one thing that I care about, you know, because now that I am, you know, very far removed from church world, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the people that I care about are still sitting in those pews. Um, but I guarantee your pastors are not going to invite me to come and speak to you. So <laughs> I'm doing my best right now mm-hmm. to try to find, you know, where these people are and help them, help them get out because th- this is, this is my, my, my hope. And the reason why we call it the slingshot show is because it's, uh, you know, uh, my wife and I, we've always viewed ourselves as uh, our dream is to see other people's dream come true. We want to help you do your thing. We want to help you make your thing. So, I mean, we started a nonprofit, and it, it's there. We don't really do anything with it right now, but we feel like it's kind of starting to, starting to, you know, rile back up a little bit, you know, and um, we just want to help you figure out who you are, who you want to be, and um, do everything we can to help that help that happen. Um, so, and, yeah, and, and look, even if you uh, – are, uh, we're, we're even – I'm fine with talking to pissed-off parents, too. So if you've got – if you're listening to this and, like, your kid is, like – going down the rabbit hole and everything like that and you need somebody to vent to call me (laughs) we'll make Mm -hmm. it okay (laughs) oh and that's so true you have been you and kirby both have been such a gift to me as i've traveled down my own rabbit hole and i i just have so appreciated both of you so much and i know that you're a gift to so many people so many people well i'm just trying to be the next white boy oprah (laughs) <laughs> you know, that's what this world needs right now is a white Oprah. You know, I think that's that would solve need. a lot of we need, a, we need a white male Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, Jonathan, thank you for doing this today. Thank you so hey, much. Hey, thanks for letting me. I love talking. Oh, well, we love listening. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. You have a great day. Oh, you too. We'll talk soon. All right. Bye. Hey there, I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. You can find my blog and links to my Instagram and Facebook account on my website at justajesusfollower.com. I hope you join us next week for another raw, honest conversation. In the meantime, go in peace and know that you are enough.